Katie Herzog. Hey, Jesse, are you familiar with uh, Monkeypox? It's now been rebranded as like MPH or something, but Monkeypox? Yeah, I've been covered with sores for years and no one cares, and suddenly it's like a big deal. But yeah, Monkeypox. That's Jesse Pox. I got a bad. I have the first known case of Jesse Pox, yes. <laughs> first and only. Okay, so obviously Monkeypox is a big story right now. And Josh Barrow, the reporter and critic Josh Barrow, he shared a tweet or he shared an article the other day on Twitter that I, I, I wanted to read a little bit from. So this is from Oregon Public Radio, and they interviewed a senior advisor at the Oregon Health Authority about monkeypox. And uh, the reporter asked this guy about Gabe, about like the messaging around this because monkeypox is specifically impacting gay men. I mean, oftentimes it's been uh, reporters will say it's like the LGBT community. This isn't true. Lesbians don't go to bathhouses. We're not getting monkeypox. It's gay men or men who sleep with men. And 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 it's it's my understanding, having not followed closely, is like it's it's not small. Like by some measures, ninety nine percent of the cases or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's not like like totally an STD, but oftentimes it is spread through sex or sexual contact, and oftentimes through these sort of you know bathhouse parties or like big parties that gay men typically go to while lesbians are at home watching Netflix. But still, they can't say gay men, so they're saying LGBT community for some reason. Okay, so this reporter asked this guy, I'll just read you the question. Right now, my understanding is that many of the cases in Oregon have been found in cisgender men who have sex with men. And I'm wondering how you are approaching public health messaging around this, resisting stigmatization and shame and blame while also targeting those men at risk right now with resources. So the, uh, the, the guy from the health authority, his name is Menza. Here's what he says. It's quite the challenge. What what we've been trying to do as best we can is stick with what we know. In the United States, we know that people assigned a male at birth who have sex with men and people assigned female at birth, including at least one pregnant person, have been affected by HMPXV, that's monkeypox, in Oregon. We know that cisgender men and non-binary people are affected by monkeypox. He doesn't say monkeypox. You can say monkeypox. HPXV, monkeypox. Just look, our audience is not smart enough to follow that many characters, just say monkeypox. While most identify as gay or queer and report close contact with people assigned male at birth, we have cases that also identify as straight and bisexual and report close contact with people assigned... Like, it is just... This is so fucking bizarre. It's just word salad. Like, just say, it's like gay men are getting this disease. Sometimes other people get it, but it's a gay man disease. It's sort of... um, I mean, no, okay. Don't don't say it's a gay man disease. Say you're... There's a a way to say it in a gentle, compassionate way. (laughs) Look, like, I love fags. Like Look, fags are my people. I have no problem with them. This is not I'm not judging them. I'm just saying that it's only gay men who get the fucking disease. It's a gay disease. It's roughly analogous to like the gender talk where people are like, well, you know, there's no real connection between being a woman and getting when like 99% right. of the uh, it's and but in this case like the stakes are much higher because this is really um I I would imagine it's hard to find public health emergencies that are even more focused on one particular population where you should devote so many resources to gay men, both to like telling them how to stay safe, to treating them. And then we're like, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a lot of examples where fighting against stigma can actually do more harm than good. And this is like a textbook one. Yeah. Just be clear. Say, don't go to sex parties right now during the summer. Get vaccinated if you can, which is unfortunately hard to do. But stop going to sex parties just for a few months or at least until you're fucking vaccinated. Like it's you got to be clear about this shit or you're causing more harm than good. And frankly, I also don't think that gay men are so fragile than commenting on the reality of the fact that this is 
a disease that primarily affects gay men with specific behaviors is going to offend them. I think they're going to be more offended by the lesions popping out of their faces than they are the fucking language around it. Well, it's also like we, it's not like we have no historical exactly. recent examples of exactly this debate in a much higher stake setting. I think Andrew Sullivan and Dan Savage have been good on yeah. this. It's, it's, it's fucking sad, man. You're like the, the top priority should be keeping people safe. It's like stigma is in many ways an abstraction here that abstracts away from the reality of who's most affected. It, that's annoying. For a public health official to say that is really frustrating. LGBT community. Come on. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. This was sort of, it was sort of like when the ACLU said that L- LGBT people are most affected <laughs> abortion, by abortion yes. bans. It's like, that's uh, not, that's not a thing. Like we, we, str- we straights have very few claims on victimization. <laughs> Don't take that from us. It's not even the straights, men. It's women. No, it's uh, straight men are most affected by abortion bans because we'd have to take care of the kids, which we don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. Before we get into it, can I do one other um, thing? Yes. That was a good segue, right? Yeah, that was great. So obviously we want people to become premium subscribers. Um, I got a DM in response to one our most recent premium episode, which was about Peach Mom. And I also, at the end, I brought in Plum Dad. And if you don't know who Plum Dad is, you should just, you should listen up. Yeah. Um, I got this DM from someone responding to this episode. Mr. Slave is a leather daddy, not a gimp. So don't I think even that, explain that. I'm not explaining it. That is an ad to become a premium <laughs> subscriber. Mr. Slave, imagine clap emojis. Mr. Slave is a leather daddy, not a gimp. So yes, blocked and reported.org. That's a good correction, Jesse. Thank you. Katie, what is the name of this increasingly lesion-covered podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single, and today we're going to talk about uh, subjects. We do have some subjects. One of them uh, is I'm going to talk a little bit about a paper involving everyone's favorite activity slash sin, masturbating. And we're going to talk about another paper uh, involving everyone's favorite psychological hypothesis, rapid onset gender dysphoria. I guess we'll bleep that out. Offensive term. We should maybe bleep that out. Yes. Lots of uh, lots of scholarly talk here on the podcast today. Uh, before we get to that, we are going to talk about the death of Jimmy Concepts. Jimmy Concepts, rest in peace. Uh, his tombstone would read 2016, 2015, 2022. Yeah. And I, what would the, what, what do they, what's the writing on a, on a tombstone called? Epitaph? Epitaph? Yeah, something like that. It would just say, okay, groomer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want my tombstone to say, just okay, groomer. Uh, First, you wanted to talk about uh, Cracker Barrel, right? Your favorite restaurant? Yeah, this can maybe be brief, but I found it hilarious that there's, according to several articles, Cracker Barrel, uh, which again, obviously my favorite restaurant. I don't think I've, you've probably been, you're like a country girl. You probably do most of your meals at a Cracker Barrel. All of them. I only eat lard. I'm on a full lard diet. It's the Jordan Peterson lard diet. So Cracker Barrel, known for meaty fare like, uh, I presume, sausages and fries. It's just where white people eat off of barrels. Yes. That's why they call it that. (laughs) White people eating off of barrels. Uh, Yeah, they did some social media posts announcing they now have impossible sausages and stuff. So one of the posts just read, where pork-based and plant-based sausage lovers can breakfast all day in harmony, which is a beautiful image. Uh, I'm a vegetarian. I'm a fan of impossible uh, meats, although I mostly just do the it's burgers. Good. They are good. It's impressive that they pulled that off. So there's a spate of articles where apparently 
conservatives are furious at this. And so USA Today, bad choice. Brenda K. Mowney commented on Facebook, do your research. Another Facebook user, Mark V-I-G-E, all caps, you can take my pork sausage when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. Don't tread on my pork. What I, f- what I found interesting about this is when I first heard about it, I assumed this was just an example of like the culture wars growing wider and wider and, and just capturing everything like quicksand. And I assumed that there was like a non-trivial number of conservatives actually furious about the presence of impossible meat in Cracker Barrel. But then I realized like increasingly what these outlets are doing is just finding any random wacko on Facebook, including many who are probably like trolling mm-hmm. and just treating what they're saying as real. And I just think this is like a subtly useful example of how the culture wars are getting incredibly stupid. I still I read a couple of these articles. I do not know if there's actually more than five two online conservatives mad about impossible patties. Did Cracker Barrel release a statement about this a supposed backlash? <laughs> Did they cancel I Impossible Meat? I think so. I think they still have Impossible Meat. Um, it's just like I we we talked about this on the premium episode. We grew up in a time of like pretty ascendant social conservative backlash to a lot of stuff. Uh, so it's not hard to believe conservatives getting mad about something this stupid. I just resent the fact that we live in an age where because everyone it's where what it's a story. Well, where you don't know it's a right. story. Like, I don't, we have no idea. They found some people on Facebook. Is that a story or is it not? Increasingly, journalists treat that as a story. And of course, both sides do that, but I don't know if it's a story. Here's how we, st- we test it we mock up a press release from the Cracker Barrel announcing that they are adding portobello mushrooms to their menu, and we see if there's a backlash with that too. That's a good idea. We should do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah I think our move is just to impersonate Cracker Barrel and further exacerbate things. That won't hurt anything. That would be great for us. So, yeah, we're Blotch Reported is planning a series of sit-ins in Cracker Barrel restaurants to make sure <laughs> that no non-meat items are served because this is fucking America. I mean, come on. I wonder if people would, who eat at Cracker Barrel would actually notice if their sausage was replaced by Impossible Sausage, which is – the Impossible Sausage is really good. We, we eat it much more than like regular sausage in my household even though none of us are vegetarian. Uh, if anybody would notice. I, I think often, especially for like a burger where a burger – A cheap burger. It's, well, even like I get a lot of Impossible and Beyond Burgers and it's usually like five other delicious toppings with the burger and the taste of the burger gets washed out. So I think oftentimes you right. wouldn't notice. The last time I accidentally ate meat, which happens from time to time, I thought I was ordering a Beyond Burger and they misheard it and I ate a regular burger without noticing. So yeah, I don't <laughs> – I was so hungry. I was at a working at a bar in Brooklyn, and there was um, this is way too boring. But there's a burger called the Bergen Burger because we uh, have Bergen Street in Brooklyn, and I thought I said Beyond Burger. Uh-huh. And the my server was Irish, uh-huh. so already some communication issues. She can't hear English. Uh, no, it was my fault. I didn't speak clearly. But then I ate it so quickly because I'm a glutton, and I was like, oh, I think that was meat, and oh, it was. Uh, how did you feel after that? Guilty. I thought it was going to destroy my body, but I think my whole stomach is just a callus at this point from like everything I've done to it. So it's fine. All right. Should we move on to the slightly more important stuff? Yeah. Jimmy Concepts. Jimmy Concepts. Today, Jesse, we need to pour one out for conceptual James Lindsay, who was permanently, finally banned from Twitter. Do we know it's permanent? Uh, It said that on his, like the notification that he got. (laughs) <laughs> they sent him a plaque. <laughs> they they sent him a gravestone. <laughs> Commemorating the date he was freed. Rest in Congratulations. Okay, so Jesse, how would you explain James Lindsay to somebody who isn't terminally online like us? 
how how do you explain a child's smile how do you explain sunshine uh jimmy concepts also known as james Lindsay, was a i believe mathematician who got very much pulled into the woke wars he became a personality centered around fighting what he called grievance studies and what he called wokeness i mean what a lot of us call wokeness and he became one of the uh at conceptual james was his twitter handle hence uh, jimmy concepts which is a great nickname that we did not come up with he became one of the most strident and increasingly crazy critics of wokeness and i think he will be a cautionary tale for why if you think wokeness is bad or illiberalism in liberal spaces is bad, maybe don't make that the center of your identity and maybe have a life beyond that because otherwise you're going to become crazy. Yeah, maybe touch grass as they say. So yeah. So James, he first became known to the public or at least a small section of the public when he and Peter Bogosian, who was a professor at the time at Portland State University, they published a hoax paper in the journal Cogent Social Sciences called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, which like now that I have put that together, like conceptual James, conceptual penis, it's like disgusting, but makes sense in some way. Hmm. And so the paper itself, it was written in this sort of postmodern nonsense. And the goal was to get it in a peer reviewed journal in order to demonstrate that the whole field was bullshit. So here's how uh, Lindsay and Bogosian describe this in Skeptic magazine. Assuming the pen names Jamie Lindsay and Peter Boyle and writing for the fictitious Southeast Independent Social Research Group, we wrote an absurd paper loosely composed in the style of post-structuralist discursive gender theory. The paper was ridiculous by intention, essentially arguing that penises shouldn't be thought of as male genital organs but as damaging social constructs. We made no attempt to find out what post-structuralist discursive gender theory actually means. We assume that if we were merely clear in our moral implications that maleness is intrinsically bad and that the penis is somehow at the root of it, we could get the paper published in a respectable journal. So this made a lot of news at the time. But the thing is, Cogent Social Sciences is not actually a respectable journal. They first submitted this to the journal Norma International Study for Masculinity Studies. That was rejected. And the editors, there's some sort of automatic referral process. And so the editors suggested that they try Cogent Social Sciences. But Cogent Social Sciences isn't respectable. It's peer-reviewed, in quotes. There's apparently a a $1,350 fee to publish. I asked Peter if they paid to publish, and he said that 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 there was a fee, but they never actually paid it. He also said that the Portland State Library, where he was a professor at the time, wanted to pay the fee, which I guess is common. Um, and that yeah, you usually get institutional yeah. funding to pay those fees yeah. more often. Yeah, and this so this idea that like paying to publish this sounds to me from somebody who's not academia, it sounds like a red flag. Apparently, it's not as much of a red flag as it used to be, and increasingly, journals are charging to publish, and then and then instead of charging for uh, for readers to get access, it's an open access paper. So the so the 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 researcher pays versus the reader paying. Yeah, I mean, academic publishing is such a scam on so many levels, and there's so many journals that are yeah technically peer reviewed, but just. Published garbage. And so I asked a bunch of researchers if this journal was legit. Here's what one said. It may not be an outright predatory journal, but is generally regarded as a vanity journal with little strong credibility. Another one said, it looks third or fourth rate, but the publisher is a standard academic company, not a weird predatory one. The editors are real scholars with decent publication records. It's not a fake predatory journal, just a low-tier grab bag social science journal that publishes a bunch of marginal papers, mostly from Asia and Africa. So I don't think that this was really the slam dunk against like queer studies or masculinity studies that 
Peter and James claimed that it was at the time. Rather, it showed that you can get almost anything published if you're A, willing to pay for it, and B, go for a crap journal. That's a totally separate issue. And to their credit, they later admitted this in an article that explained their nexus. This is from Arrow Magazine. In May 2017, James and Peter published a paper in a poorly ranked peer-reviewed journal arguing, among other things, that penises conceptually caused climate change. Its impact was very limited, and much of the criticism was legitimate. The journal was poor, and its quality was by far the most dominant factor in how it was published. So I think that's good that they, that they like later admitted that this idea that this was this like slam dunk against a respectable journal. It just wasn't true. I also suspect that Helen Pluckrose wrote that paragraph. Yes, Helen Pluckrose. We should, uh, who, who is that? Remind me. Okay, so for their next hoax, this was James and Peter again, and they also brought in Helen Pluckrose, who is a British woman, a writer. She's done various projects with both of them. And this, this hoax- She's very is, nice, too. She's she has great. like the opposite personality great. of James. Yeah. And so this hoax got much more attention. This was called the Grievance Studies hoax. Jesse, can you explain that? Yeah. I mean, one of the theories they're working with is that like there are all these different areas of academia that rely on like postmodern interpretations of the world. I'm using that term loosely because no one uses it, right? Um, I don't think I, I it's blah blah blah. It's complicated, as they say. But they say that As they say. As they, that's my I'm they is me. That's your pronoun, is a they. Mm-hmm. Uh grievance studies are like there's just this this swath of academia that really just produces stuff that's like white people bad, society's oppressive, and just isn't really producing quality work, is just regurgitating the same themes over and over. That's my sense of what they mean by grievance studies. It's it's papers just designed to surface and mutate and regurgitate grievances. Right. So they submitted 20 papers to various journals, journals in feminist studies, queer studies, fat studies, things like that. Seven of these were published. Uh, the, the hoax was revealed by a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. When it was revealed, seven were still under review and six had been rejected. Of the ones that were accepted, here's a few examples. Uh, One was called Human Reactions to Rape Culture and Queer Performativity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon. That was published in Gender, Place, and Culture. Another one was called Who Were They to Judge? Overcoming Anthropometry. And that's apparently like something to do with fatness. And a framework for fat bodybuilding. That was published in Fat Studies. And uh, Going Through the Back Door, Challenging Straight Male. Oh, my God, these words. Homo hysteria and transphobia through receptive penetrative sex toy use. This was published in Sexuality and Culture, and it essentially argued that men should overcome their transphobia by putting sex toys in their butts. They also claimed to have rewritten a chapter from Mein Kampf from a feminist lens replacing the word Jews with men. Jesse, didn't you look into that at one point? Someone else looked into it, and what they basically said was that I, I don't remember this enough to know if I endorse this argument. They were like, no, they didn't really do that. They really rewrote stuff enough that it wasn't fair for them to be like, this is lightly rewritten Nazi propaganda. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. When they re- like wrote up the story of this hoax, they claimed that it was – they used the word rewrite, a rewrite of Mein Kampf. They didn't say like we like f- – like copy F to replace the word Jews with men. But I think that's the narrative that they didn't really explain it very well. And I think that's the narrative that sort of popularly spread was that it was just this like copy and paste job. That's not actually what the what the chapter was, though. Yeah. uh, yeah. And so this became a, a huge story when it was revealed. And Peter was later investigated by the by Portland State because they claimed that he violated institutional review board policies. And that's basically a process that you have to go through uh, when you're doing research on human subjects. 
Peter eventually resigned, and now he's on the faculty at the University of Austin, as far as that's an actual thing. Uh, and then Peter and James, they later wrote a book together called How to Have Impossible Conversations, which now seems very ironic. That's about the sausage conversation, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, considering what James has become in the past couple of years, that title is extremely ironic. Yeah, I just want to say, the, the thing I did look into here was uh, Peter Bogosian's claims that he was being unfairly investigated by Portland State. And... Basically, all the IRB experts, Institutional Review Board experts I talked to were like, no, the the stuff they did violated what are considered ethical norms in the field. Now, the IRB system is very broken and in certain cases a little bit, certain senses a little bit draconian. But I, I thought he really tried to get mileage out of the idea that he was being unfairly sort of persecuted. It could be the case that Portland State went after him on IRB grounds because they don't like his politics. That's that has sort of thing certainly happens, but they he he violated standard IRB norms and and then sort of pretended he was being witch hunted. I will say in Peter's defense there's also other things happening like the way that his students and colleagues or maybe not his students but other people within the university and his colleagues sort of reacted to all of this that he was definitely I think sort of persona non grata at Portland State. Absolutely. That could definitely yeah. be true. And so the, the the thing with the IRB, so the argument is that Peter and James and Helen, that the editors, that the peer review process, like they were the subjects of this study, right? Uh, yeah, yes. It was basically- Un- unwitted, unwitted It had to do subjects. with the fact that, yes, the editors of the journals were the subjects of the study. They could be subject to scrutiny, which I think is good. But from an IRB perspective, if someone could be embarrassed or subjected to scrutiny, you need to lay that out clearly when you get IRB approval. You also need to be careful with anything involving deception of subjects, which was the case here. So the folks yeah. I talked to who are IRB experts, not all of whom are fans of the IRB process as it exists, were just like, this is pretty straightforward that uh, Bogosian is in the wrong here. That's what they thought. And again, he could be in the wrong in the context of a system that's stupid. Do you think that these sort of studies would have gotten IRB approval? Did they tell you that? Uh I think it would probably have been hard for them to do it within the bounds. I'm, I'm, this was years ago, but I, my sense is like IRB is crazy. Like there's crazy stories about the sorts of approval you need to do the most basic studies. So I think they would have had a hard time, but that, I'm not, I'm just basing that on my intuitions. You know, my one experience with IRB, so when I was in college during my senior year of college, I was a creative writing major and I did my senior thesis on a group of anti-abortion protesters uh, oddly, it was the same group of pro- like it was this this family of um of like very strict doctrinaire Mennonites who had the father had at one point sent a photo of an aborted fetus to my dad at our like house Jesus. in the mail. Jesus, yeah. And anyway, I I did a so I did like a, basically a journalism project on these guys, and I got a call from like the IRB committee, and they were like, "We heard that you're doing this." What the fuck are you doing? And I was like, what IRB? What are you talking? Like, this is this is journalism. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's fine. But that does show you, like, if it's journalism, you don't have to go through this sort of process. But if it was like a human, st- you know, if it's science, you do. That that's one of the areas where the norms are so different. Where like right. a lot of stuff that is just standard good journalism, you can get in trouble with if you yeah. do it with an academia. Yeah. Okay, Jesse. So that's how how I first learned about James Lindsay. How would you describe what he has become in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, like I was saying, he's just become the most vitriolic, angry, conspiratorial uh, figure, got into weird anti-vax stuff, got into, I think, some of the stuff we talk about, about gender identity and kids with gender dysphoria. Uh, It has attracted both good faith critics of that stuff and, in some cases, homophobes, like genuine homophobes. So Lindsay now spends a lot of time calling people 
groomers and they do this shitty thing where they'll be like well we mean they're grooming kids into thinking they're trans or to believing in gender identity but there's a long history of like accusing gay men in particular of grooming kids and Lindsay started doing that endlessly, endlessly. on twitter endlessly. and i suspect and caught everyone who did everyone's a groomer he just acts like a fucking crazy person on Twitter, and he thinks there's vast conspiracies of groomers. Anyone who disagrees with him risks being called a groomer. And you and I both think it's dumb to be like, oh, help, I'm being harassed. There's all these people in my mentions. But the fact is, if you haven't previously experienced that scrutiny and James Lindsay holds you up for ridicule, you're going to have a pretty bad time on Twitter. Yeah, he applies the word groomer as liberally as Jason Stanley applies the word fascist to people. Like, it's just, it's everybody's a groomer. And instead of using the word, say, indoctrination, which people understand, he uses this incredibly loaded word that makes it think that makes it sound like teachers are like diddling children. I mean, this is sort of it's sort of the Chris Rufo thing where he very yeah. openly is like, we're going to use words in certain ways to elicit emotional reactions, even if they're not fully justified. Yeah, I think Chris at least is a little bit more transparent about it than James is. But he, he went from someone who was concerned about the rise of the woke left because of the reaction it provokes from the right to someone who was actively campaigning for Donald Trump. And I know that this used to be his his like paramount concern. And by the way, he comes from before he like became sort of famous, he was involved in New Atheist. Like that's where his he was a liberal. And I talked to him on the phone probably a year before the last election. And he told me, he said, if Donald Trump wins, people on the left are going to look at this as proof that the world is intractably racist or the US is intractably racist, intractably sexist, intractably homophobic, and all the woke shit is just going to get worse because it will be proof positive to them. A year later, he's wearing a MAGA hat and campaigning for Donald Trump. Well, not only that, but I did this... um Brett Weinstein had this like fireside yeah. chat. I forget what it was, fireside conversations. And I went on with him and Lindsay. And to this day, Lindsay's fanboys still think I got like humiliated because uh, I I made that I didn't realize Lindsay had made that argument. I made that argument. I said, if your overriding concern is wokeness, it's not my overriding concern, Trump getting reelected would just absolutely exacerbate that. And I was I was ridiculed for that because Lindsay's argument, I guess, was that Trump would effectively fight wokeness by coming back into office, which I both him and Brett, in my view, I'm not an expert on politics. I've been writing about politics for a while. Um, their level of naivete about like how stuff works, I found striking. Like their inability to understand things like backlash, to understand the fact that like most Democrats are still normies, even if they're crazy people. I I did not find that they had a realistic grasp on like the reality of America with its two-party system, especially James. James is too online. I think Brett does actually touch grass. James is too fucking online. He sees everything. Brett touches grass, but I just I again I don't want to make everything about this. I I found their inability to understand um, why if you're concerned with a liberalism, you should run like hell from Donald Trump. Very surprising. Yeah. I don't want to make everything partisan or about Donald Trump, but he's like he is the exemplar of anti-liberalism. Right. And and Brett didn't campaign or ever endorse Donald Trump. He did this other weird thing, which was he was trying to like recruit third party, like candidates to run as a third. That was also insane. But he at least endorsed Donald Trump. So James and James, so he was active in the in the like new atheist movement. And now he runs a website. He does most of his publishing on this website of his own called New Discourses. It's owned by a Christian nationalist 
named Michael O'Fall- O'Fallon. So he has – I don't know that, that James himself has, like, become spiritual or whatever, but his politics have taken a complete 180 in the last couple of years. Wait, the website is owned by a Christian nationalist? Yeah. I thought Lindsay just sort of founded his own website. I didn't know that. It's uh, it's apparently it is owned by it's like funded by this guy. Yeah, a lot of these a lot of people who become these sort of like heterodox figures. I don't like that word, but that's what it is. You can get quiet funding and a lot of it from people. Yeah. 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 Okay, so let's talk about a few of uh, James's greatest hits. Unfortunately, because he's been banned from Twitter, we don't have a great archive, and he has tweeted hundreds of thousands of times on there were some days when he would tweet literally every two minutes or less for hours on end. I mean, thousands of tweets in a day. Anthony Fisher from the Daily Beast, he cataloged a few of Lindsay's quintessential moments. Jesse, do you remember when he uh, fought against the Auschwitz Museum? Yeah, he had a... (laughs) Whereas... Yes, he basically has a long-running beef with the Auschwitz Museum, which I, you know, on the list of people on Twitter to beef with, they're not high on my list, but I guess... You would put the Bergen-Belsen Museum higher? Mm-hmm. Yeah, much higher. Uh, no, that it was bizarre to watch, and I think that was a holy shit moment for maybe a lot of people who previously respected him. I'm just going to read you this tweet. So he's retweeting the Auschwitz Memorial... Uh, they said, exploiting the tragedy of Jews who were humiliated, marked with a yellow star, isolated star, dehumanized, and murdered in ghettos during the Holocaust in a debate about vaccination that saves human lives during the pandemic is shameful. It's a sad symptom of moral decay. This was James's comment. Don't talk to me about moral decay when you stand on the side that will repeat the atrocities that you claim should happen never again unless men like me can prevent them. Don't you dare. He's talking about vaccines. That, that that if you took that tweet, I, I'm not trying to be mean to people with mental health. That almost comes across like someone with, with schizophrenia. Yeah. The Auschwitz Museum is going to join and create a new Holocaust based on vaccination unless men like me prevent it. That there's a level it's of- It's grandiose. Maybe he's performing it, but it's, it's incredibly yeah. crazy. He also tweeted a photo of a bunch of Air Force soldiers carrying the rainbow flag, like the old rainbow flag, not the new ugly one. This was his commentary. Carrying the flag of a hostile in- enemy in the military. Shame. If you're like, I think I, my sense from our comment section is most of our listeners find the guy crazy. But like, if you're still looking up to James Lindsay, how do you, I'm just curious, like what's going through people's heads? Do people realize how crazy and reactionary that is to call a pride flag the flag of the enemy? Do people not think that's homophobic? I don't know. Does he not think that gay people should be out in the military? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Well, that, the other thing is because it's Twitter and it's all short form, he'll tweet stuff that seems crazy. And then if you ask him for like follow-up explanation, he'll just make fun of you or call you a groomer. So he can just tweet endless things. And I guess there's some level of plausible deniability because he never explains what he means. Although he does have a podcast where apparently goes on at some length, but I will not listen to it. Uh, here's another one. This is from... Uh, March of this year. Biden wasn't installed as president by accident. That's how arrogant the enemies of humanity are. They put him where he is on purpose because they deemed him the best option for their plans. Now look, pride cometh before the fall. Yeah. Okay. So Biden was installed by nefarious... Enemy. The globalist. The globalist, I take it. Probably George Sor- George Soros, maybe with parentheses around his name. Yeah, I think he probably learned this from Alex Jones. I mean, it's just, this is crazy, crazy shit. And then there was this recent tweet. I think this is maybe a new low. McCarthy had it right, didn't go nearly far enough. That's Joe McCarthy he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Good stuff from James. I think his corner of the internet is in a healthy place and certainly keeps things in perspective. And uh, it's too bad we won't enjoy his tweets anymore. So the tweet that apparently got him banned was actually pretty tame by Lindsay's standards. Basically, he called a trans lawyer a, quote, child sexualization specialist, presumably because Twitter recently banned calling people groomer because they said it's an anti-LGBTQ slur. So James went on his podcast, New Discourses, and talked about this whole thing. Let's just play a clip of him uh, talking about the response to his banning. There are two class, classes of people who can basically go F themselves. One are there, well, no, three. One is the people who hate me and they're celebrating my suspension. Like, okay, uh, it's a Twitter account, man. And like now a whole lot more people are going to talk about this issue and think that something really funny is going on with it. So keep celebrating. Um, good for you. But then there's these people who are just kind of these weird, like very smart vultures. And granted, I blackened those nodes, as you might say, those social nodes pretty heavily by by taunting them and poking at them. But, you know, they're they're uh, trying to uh, drag my memory as it were. It's really weird. It's almost like people are treating Twitter on Twitter like I died um, and I get to read the eulogies. It's really strange. Um, but they're like trying to drag my memory. In fact, I saw somebody who said, you know, we come not to to um, eulogize James Lindsay, but to bury him. And it's like, it's a very weird phenomenon. And then there's, so th those people can definitely just go F themselves. And, uh, you know, I see, I re I'll remember, don't worry. Um, and then I know who you are. And then, then there are people who are like trying to make it like academic. They're like trying to academize, academize it. They're like, oh, well, Lindsay finally lost his mind. And if he would have just stayed on the straight and narrowed and stayed more academic instead of being so populist or saying such rambunctious things. And it's like, no, stop apologizing for the censorship of Twitter. You guys are the problem. You guys are the third category of the problem. I just named three problems. So you guys are the, the problem. If that was you, shame on you. No, Twitter shouldn't be censoring people. And no, just like with Alex Jones, just like with a lot of other people in, 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 in this line that have been banned from social media, whether Alex Jones is a perfect test case, the original, in fact, but we could talk about Megan Murphy. We could talk about a lot of different people from a lot of different persuasions who've been permanently banned from social media platforms for no good reason. And then you say things like, well, if they just would have spoken correctly, this never would have happened. No, piss on you. That attitude is why we're in this mess in the first place. That exact attitude is what enables communists to gain power. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on here. I, I apologize to all the students we've exposed that to. Piss on you. Um, I think his inability to express himself without terms like piss on you. Anyway, what he's doing, I think, is kind of clever because he's pointing to what I think are legitimate free speech issues on places like Twitter, including gender stuff is always an epicenter of this. Uh, you know, Megan Murphy's banning what what the policy should be on pronouns and, and so-called misgendering, like including in some cases where the person you're talking to might not be legally recognized as what they say. There's like clearly conversations to be had there. My read of the Lindsay things is he was just an incredible prick and a high profile prick over and over and over and over. And I think a private company at a certain point, if you push the boundaries over and over and over and over, I, they just think you're making their platform shitty. I find it very weird siding with Twitter, but I don't think this is about like his substantive arguments about wokeness or whatever, because a lot of people are making those arguments. Or maybe I'm falling, do you think I'm falling for the trap he says people are falling for? Should we be defending his right to continue calling everyone a groomer on Twitter? 
Well, let's uh, let's come back to that in a second. I just want to point out the irony of a dude who tweeted that McCarthy didn't go far enough complaining about censorship on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. A lot of these guys, the level of cognitive dissonance that they fail to detect in themselves is pretty bad. And I, I also think that this speaks to his obsession with communism or Marxism, because when you're James Lindsay, everything is a hammer and sickle. Everything is monocausal. Why did Russia in- invade Ukraine? Wokeness. I'm half convinced that if 9-11 happened today, he would blame Black Lives Matter and Leah Thomas. He's like, he just, he does not have sophisticated thinking. He's... The towers were phallic symbols. They had to be taken down. <laughs> okay, but so that's separate from the question of whether or not he should have banned, he should have been banned. And what do you think, Jesse? Well, I, I tip my hand a little bit. I don't know. I Maybe I'm being hypocritical here. I don't I don't think he was banned for fighting wokeness. I think he, he was banned for being no. an irredeemable prick and making it a miserable place. And you and I both tend toward the idea that private platforms, it's bad for society if private platforms censor people or make certain conversations unhavable. And I think Twitter has made really bad decisions on that front uh, that I wish they would reverse. I am finding it hard to come up with a case for why they should allow James Lindsay, who there's just been so many examples of him acting like a total asshole. And there's a lot of people making the exact same arguments as him who are not close to getting banned from Twitter. So I don't know. I'm having trouble coming up with a defense for it. Maybe I'm a, a free speech sellout. You're a cuck, free speech cuck. I'm a cuck. Yeah. I mean, if I were in charge of Twitter moderation or content moderation, I probably would not have banned him myself. That said, there is some part of me, and I am slightly ashamed of this, that is kind of happy that he was banned, not just because I think that he makes the platform much more toxic than it has to be. I think he is a, a great offender when it comes to that, but also because I think it's making him crazy. I really think that that he has Twitter brain. You just have his well-being at heart. Yes, this is just for him. <laughs> I'm I'm really curious as to what he's doing now with his time because the dude spent all day long on Twitter tweeting thousands of times a day and I think it's really really unhealthy and maybe now he can start to recover. I don't think that's my my theory of this stuff and it's probably different for everyone. My theory has always been if you ban the craziest people, they'll just go to darker places where their delusions will get more reinforced. I mean, we'll see what happens here, but you're, you're also cutting him off from, uh, well, I guess at this point he probably was getting most people just telling him to fuck off for understandable reasons. But in theory, you're cutting him. Yeah. I mean, he still had a pretty large audience of reply guys, which you would find out any time that you criticized him, he would find it, quote, retweet you, and then get you'd get flooded by people calling you a groomer. And the typical defense of James Lindsay is like, he's just trolling. It's all a joke. Okay. If it were funny, that would be fine. But calling people groomers and crypto wokes and saying your mom over and over again isn't funny. It's dumb. And the thing that, that really, that I find most shameful about James is that Helen Pluckrose is a good, decent, kind, caring person. She and James wrote a book together called Cynical Theories. She's now has left public life entirely. She's like working, she's doing like care work for disabled people in the UK. I don't think that this is just because of James, but I also don't think that that he helped. I think that his reputation became so toxic and it just splashed back on her. And that's really unfair for her. And I think the fact that he did this, knowing that this was going to impact his co-authors, shows him to be a pretty fucking selfish person. Yeah, I um I don't I don't know what's up with Helen, but she's a totally nice, reasonable person. I mean, part of this is just like if you have any literally any belief system you could hold. There's going to be crazy fringe people who who do not help the movement. So if your view 
is that wokeness is bad or that you're worried about a liberalism in progressive spaces, someone like James Lindsay makes everything worse. worse in the same sense that if you want police reform, the craziest abolish the police or or kill cops people make things worse for you. Like there's always you need a if you care about your ideological movement, you do need to police the boundaries a little and, and that can often be a fraud enterprise. Yeah, I think people like James make all of us who are concerned about this stuff look bad and I'm resentful of him for that and I'm resentful of the fact that I – I wrote about Sokol Square, this the Grievance Studies hoax. I wrote about that positively and then James turned into a fucking creep online. Um, <laughs> so maybe- Although, I mean, we should also – we should note that there's a difference between concerns about that within a broader liberal and progressive framework that I think we share and deciding to make that the overriding like obsession and the one – meaning of your life, fighting wokeness, which I think is profoundly right. unhealthy. Right. I mean, I think spending as much time on Twitter as he did is also profoundly unhealthy. I, I'm just, I'm also just so curious about what he's doing now that his supply has been cut off. Could he, maybe he should be the next um, guest host if one of us is out. Yeah. Uh, should we play the Dr. Phil clip? Oh my God. Yeah. Please welcome co-author of book, uh, Cynical Theories, James Lindsay. James, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Dr. Phil. You say this should be an artifact. We should just put this behind us. I do not believe the critical race theory tenet that says that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in our society, and if we don't dredge up a race consciousness, that we can't get over it. I think this is actually a lie. It's very annoying to me to listen back and, to the back and forth here, in fact. I'm glad to be here to bring some knowledge. I take a lot of umbrage with the idea that we're going to talk about should we have critical race theory, this or that, because it's talking about racism or history, when the fact of the matter is it's not are we? It's how are we? And I am shocked and appalled to hear the defensive side for critical race theory misrepresented this way, but they don't explain, for example, why the first paper called Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education by Gloria Lads and Billings was published in 1995. They don't explain why Richard Delgado's 2001 book explains on page five, for example, that it rapidly spread from law to other disciplines, especially education. They don't explain also in the exact same situation that Gloria Ladson Billings is one of the chief authors of a of a ed equity in Virginia that's bringing critical race theory into all of the state schools of edu- uh, of Virginia right now. You, you must breathe through your ears because you... <laughs> you, 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 you are. I have read the vast majority of the major works in critical race theory that have been published since 1970 <laughs> to the most recent things, including, for example, in 2017, we have Allison Bailey writing a paper for Hypatia, an education paper, and she says that there's the critical thinking tradition, but what we're doing in critical pedagogy, which critical race theory is an integral, uh, integrated part of, is from a different set of tradition called critical theory, which is neo-Marxism, which is interested in studying the relationships of power rather than epistemic adequacy. You can look the paper up. It's called Tracking Privilege Preserving Epistemic Pushback in Critical Race and Feminist Philosophy Classrooms. That's not being caught in K-12 schools. Sorry. <laughs> it's it's not. Not. I mean, that's uh that sums up James. I think that's who he is. Yeah. It sort of captured his Twitter essence, but in real life. Yeah, it really did. It's a it's a stream of shit. That's what it is. <laughs> Is that it for James Lizzie? Are we closing the book on Hopefully. James Lizzie? Last Hopefully. bit of dirt on the coffin of the online personality. Rest in peace, James. I will remember you. Okay. Uh, should we do housekeeping? Let's do it. We're a podcast. Blocked and reported. Go to blockedreported.org. You can get uh, three extra episodes a month for $5 a month or more. Our last one 
was about, uh, well, two episodes ago, we did Anna Mardal, a lefty figure caught up in a controversy because she works, he works for an arms manufacturer. Uh, I'm having trouble talking today. Our most recent one was about Peach Mom and Plum Dad. Uh, and also, remember, Mr. Slave is a leather daddy, not a gimp. Yes, that is a sort of intellectually stimulating content you can get on our Primo episodes. Joining is also a great and really the only way to support the show. Uh, the reason that we can do this is because of our, our primos, and there's a great and growing community over there. If you join, you also get access to our comments sections, which are very interesting, um, and some other goodies. So check it out at blockdownreported.org. Yeah, it, it, everyone knows that when James Lindsay tweets, he has an IV bag full of Mountain Dew hooked into his arm. For us, that Ivy bag is our paid subscribers. We don't need Mountain Dew because we have you guys. So that's the image you should have in mind. Help us get our fix. If you want to uh, be part of our community on Reddit, blockedreported.reddit.com. A lot of good conversation there. A lot going on. What else, Katie? Rate and review us on iTunes. We no longer have merch. Uh, if you want merch, just you got to bootleg it. it. Create, yeah. create your own merch. Um, yeah. But make sure it's good. Make, it, make us look good. Yeah. Send us a cut too. Yeah. Also, informally, you just ethics wise you should definitely send us a cut um yeah what about like a bootleg shirt where it's like blocked and reported and it's my face and your face and james Lindsay's? like we're co-hosts that'd be fun would that be funny is that something yeah i think i think a ton of people would get that Mm -hmm. yeah just walking around uh anything else for housekeeping blocked and reported.org blocked and reported.org katie what are your thoughts on masturbation? It's the greatest sin. Is it a venal sin or a mortal sin? Or I know it makes your palms itchy. It makes you go blind. It, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot going on there. Uh, was it? I always mix up like Groucho Marx quotes with um, Woody Allen quotes. It's sex with someone I love. <laughs> you hadn't heard one. that before. Yeah, it's a good one. Of course, you've heard that. Uh, so. Yes, masturbation is the subject of the latest academic controversy. This centers around a paper. This is gonna be it's gonna be hard for me to read a lot of this without laughing or puking. There was a paper published in a journal called Qualitative Which is exactly what you do when you're masturbating. Yes, exactly. Just laugh and cry and puke. Carl Anderson, a uh, Manchester University scholar, published an article in the journal Qualitative Research called I Am Not Alone. We are all alone. Using masturbation as an ethnographic method in research on Shota subculture in Japan. Did you know what Shota was before this? Of course not. So the article, yeah, it's about Shota comics, which Anderson describes as, quote, a Japanese genre of self-published erotic comics that features young boy characters. They have very interesting art in Japan, don't they? Japan is just a fascinating place. I can't I can't wait to go there. Maybe we'll get to do a live show there. Um, uh-huh. Maybe we can bring some Shota characters on stage with us. Here's here's the description of the research methods. For a period of three months, I would masturbate only to Shota comics. For this purpose, I would use dojinshi and commercial volumes that I have bought or been given during fieldwork in Japan. In short, I would masturbate in the same way that my research participants did. After each masturbation session... <laughs> After each masturbation session, I would write down my thoughts and feelings, a kind of critical self-reflection in a notebook, as a well journal. as he would journal about it. This is doubly masturbatory. You're writing about your own <laughs> masturbation in a notebook, as well as details about which material I'd used, 
where I had done it, at what time, and for how long. Isn't this just what everybody does? Yeah, totally standard, just your jerk-off journal. I would not be allowed to have <laughs> any other sexual relief during this, quote, field work in my own sexuality. <laughs> I appreciate that he uses that he uses scare quirks for his own field, field work. work. No regular porn, no sex with another person. That probably wasn't going to be an issue anyway. <laughs> no fantasies or memories. <laughs> it had to be Shota every time. I happened to live alone during this experiment, also, also surprising, and I had newly become single after a long relationship. Those factors, these factors probably contributed to my willingness and eagerness to explore this method. So wait, before you get started, it's, you said he's a scholar at Manchester University. Is he a on faculty? Is he a PhD student? What's his role? Uh, it says he's a PhD student, actually. So he's not like a professor or anything. He his website says he's a PhD student researching these weird, um, not his word, but these weird Japanese subcultures. And and he exists, right? This is not James Lindsay doing so gold tripled. <laughs> he appears to be, well, well we're going to get to we're going to get him looks like a standard like if you google image swedish man that's what it looks like swedish white academic yeah, yeah. swedish master he's very real and he has he has a bit of an online footprint that we're going to get to um so yes that is I, I read you made me as i said on twitter <laughs> you you sent me this cryptic text i was like if you don't read this fucking paper, I'm going to release these photos of you. You didn't tell me what fo- you have a lot of photos of me. I didn't know which ones, but I had to read it. It's just I have and a camera uh, uh, on your on your laptop. I you should probably cover that up with a post-it or something. Probably a bad idea. Um, so in this paper, which is just very bad, not just the subject matter, just like it it doesn't it's bad. He co- the writing is bad. Just the the everything. So he compares himself unironically to like an ethnographer who embeds himself in some unknown tribe and tries to live the way they do, which is a genuinely important sort of tradition in ethnography. Like let's try to understand how these people live so we can write about them. Key differences between what they did and what he did is that he's sitting in a climate controlled apartment in Japan masturbating and in no way inconveniencing himself or living any different sort of life. He he also, it's just very sort of self-indulgent and weirdly like self-carish. Uh, Wait, you think that a, a PhD thesis on masturbation is self-indulgent? <laughs> so he goes, he talks about like other paraphernalia of the ritual, such as buying a special lamp that made reading while masturbating easier, showed that I respected myself and that masturbating to Shoda was something to feel proud of and not ashamed of. Is it? <laughs> is it really... He tries to separate himself from like, so these are like comics about young boys. Like it's young boys masturbating, young boys doing stuff with other young boys. Quote, my desire did not only emanate from the content of the Jojinchi, but from the fact that other people too were excited by this often extreme content and masturbated to it. Safely separated in time and space, we were sharing a sexual moment and maybe coming on the same pages to the same frames. I did not want to see these people, at least not while I was masturbating, but just knowing that we were, in a way, doing it together added something to my pleasure. This feeling was enhanced when I read a secondhand dojinshi, which I assumed had been used for masturbation by its previous owner, and thus been charged, like a magic charm that would continue to bring happiness to new owners. Katie! Did he use a blacklight? Katie, there's this unified concept of humanity in existence when you're holding a child or having sex or just in, you know you know people around the world are doing the same things you've never encountered that feeling while masturbating to to young japanese boys come on daily 
be a little bit more open-minded. Anyway, I think what like bothered me about this behind the uh, beyond the content and its grossness was just how like superficial it was. So here's from the conclusion where he sums up the meaning of his research. What I learned from this experiment was to attach greater meaning and value to the act of masturbation, and especially of doing it to two-dimensional material in the form of comics. By that, I don't mean that I had belittled it before, but in a way, I think we all belittle, unconsciously, practices that we don't understand. Masturbating made me understand. Thinking more critically about my own masturbation also made me wonder if all sex is masturbation, in the sense that people are focused on their own pleasure and use other people as, quote, masturbation material. He doesn't say anything new or interesting. That observation that some sex is just using another person as a tool is like not a new observation. A lot of feminists have made it. So yeah, in addition to the ethical, potential ethical issues, there's very little there there. The paper doesn't say anything. And is he a philosopher? What like field is this? His technical affiliation is Japanese studies in the modern languages and cultures department. Um, I guess this is technically autoethnography, which can sort of latch on to any field. Masturbation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ethnography is associated with like sociology and anthropology, but uh, this is just nothing. So uh, when this got out, people got really mad about it. Some of the folks mad are like Tory politicians, or at least one of them, who were like, why are our tax dollars going to this? Yeah, we should say Manchester University in the UK. Yes, Manchester. Yeah, not uh, (laughs) Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, The psychologist and science writer, Stuart Ritchie, who's really smart and good guy, wrote a great book called Science Fictions that overlaps my own a little. He did a really good subsec post explaining how after conservatives got mad of this, a bunch of liberal science types and academics immediately began reflexively defending the paper without having read it. We're like, oh, you're criticizing this? You must hate free speech. And um, his point was simply that like, no, this is a really bad paper and it's a bad sign of standards of this journal that it was published and you don't you don't need to defend it. You can just say it's bad. Um, can I read you a little bit from my favorite thread about uh, about this paper? Please do. This is a guy named Justin A. Goosewater. Oh, I'm sorry. He's not a guy. He's a they, them. He's a postdoc at the University of Utah. And he says, from what I can tell, the author is a white cisgender queer man. Exploring the self sexually in relation to Shota takes on a new meaning when a white man is behind the wheel. Describe but not engage in the explicit fetishization of, Je- of Japan culturally and sexually. The fetishization is both personal, e.g. I am openly fetishizing a niche culturally contextual Japanese sexual subculture, and professional, e.g. I am now writing about it for my own career advancement in nature. This reeks of white supremacy in nuanced ways. So his problem with this, <laughs> oh this article is, or this paper is that it's white supremacist. It should have been a Japanese guy jerking off to uh, yeah, Japanese and, boys. And, yeah. Or t- stories about Japanese boys. Yeah. That, um, yeah. So he, he also continues to say that he's read a, f- a fair amount of Audre Lorde and uh, he's pretty sure that this is not what she what she meant when she said the erotic cannot be felt secondhand. <laughs> I think it's safe to say she did not have this in mind at that moment. Um, someone pointed me to Yasha Monk's argument and persuasion about what he calls like 180ism. Uh, quote, a phenomenon that at the suggestion of my colleague Emily Yaffe is the tendency of many participants in public debate to hear what their perceived enemies have to say and immediately declare themselves diametrically opposed. I thought that was a useful comment. James Lindsay. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, useful concept. So Richie and others also pointed out a 2012 Vice article headlined, I publish a magazine full of half-naked little boys uh, by James Lindsay. I'm just kidding. No, actually, this is an interview with Carl Anderson himself. The the It's conducted by Chloe Cross of Vice News. Here's how she describes this publication uh, Carl Anderson was responsible for. Cross describes this magazine, Breaking Boy News, that Carl Anderson was working on in 2012 as, quote, essentially... It's called Breaking Boy News. Breaking Boy News. That's not fucked up. Quote, essentially made up of violent sexual headlines about young boys, illustrated with pictures of prepubescent boys in sexualized poses, half naked and occasionally not wearing any pants. It's not technically child porn, but it is really fucked up. And the pairing of headlines about 14-year-old boys' anuses with pictures of 10-year-olds in skimpy speedos only seems like it's intending to provoke specific thoughts from a specific group of people. I mean, if you can, if you're grossing out a vice writer in 2012, that means it's gross. <laughs> That's what someone pointed out to me. <laughs> the vice writer, as as she's judging him, she's like snorting ketamine off of a stripper's stomach. <laughs> totally. She's like, this is not not cool, dude. Uh, this The Breaking Boy News was not Anderson's first publication. This is from the interview. Uh, Cross, Chloe Cross asks, tell me about Destroyer. It features naked photos of pubescent boys, right? Anderson responds, Destroyer was my first self-published project, and it started out of frustration of the current politics of the gay movement, which becomes ever more non-inclusive of the less flattering expressions of homosexuality, most notably male attraction to boys. Destroyer always sold very well, and it still does. I counted readers in 37 countries on all continents, even Africa. Breaking Boy News is more of a fun side project. So this is Carl Anderson. He has a extremely creepy history and i found this to be very different from controversies we've been somewhat involved in where we have defended researchers trying to understand why people are drawn to child porn or why they commit acts of child sex abuse i continue to think that's important i continue to think academics who try to understand these phenomena wrongly get dubbed uh pedophiles i will continue to even defend noah berlatsky when i have to but i think this is different right it, it, well, it is different in part because of the quality of the research is terrible. So my question is, how the fuck did this get published? How did this get through peer review? What is this journal? Right. I don't I don't know much about the journal. I will say not long before we recorded this, uh, there was a I went I went to remind myself what was in the paper. And there's a notice saying that due to ethical concerns surrounding this article and the social harm being caused by the publication of this work, the publishers have now agreed with the journal editors and have decided to remove the article while this investigation is ongoing uh, in accordance with these these guidelines. So they have pulled it offline, which I, I actually don't think is the best way to handle this. I think you should – everyone's at blame here. I mean the, the peer reviewers are at blame. The editors are at blame. A lot of eyes fell on this work and public, decided it was publication-worthy. I don't think it's right to just pull it offline while you're investigating it. I think you should investigate it, maybe with a notice on the paper saying it's being investigated, and then pull it offline if that's what if that's what you decide to do. Uh, how are they going to investigate this? Do they are they do they think it's like fraud, or do they think that like maybe he didn't actually get the special lamp when he was jerking off to the photos of the little boys? <laughs> we need you to demonstrate exactly how you jerked off to these photos. Uh, I think the investigation is just going to provide a pretense for them saying this doesn't meet their publication standards. It's autoethnography, so it's not like it'd be hard to prove research fraud because he literally just sat in his room and jerked off and called that scholarship. Uh, but it obviously looks terrible for the journal and it shouldn't it shouldn't have been published. It's just it's bizarre. This goes back to the fact that there's journals 
with very low standards. And I think every day horrible research is published and we just don't notice it because it doesn't, you know, brush up against a taboo. I will say I wrote a whole book about like incredibly impressive researchers from Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania publishing stuff that doesn't hold up at all. So I don't think this is problem is restricted to like lower profile PhD students writing in obscure journals. Uh, No, it might actually be also happening in journals like pediatrics. Segway here. Yes. Yeah. I mentioned this at the top. There was a really bad article in pediatrics about so-called rapid onset gender dysphoria. We're actually, yeah, I, um, I'm I'm at my dad's place and there's folks coming to do some work. So we're going to have some noise issues. So we're going to do this RRGD thing for primos, blockchainreport.org. But that's an example of something that won't be treated, I don't think, by most people as like as scandalous. And in certain ways it's not, but it's it's just truly bad science having a negative impact on the public. And I think these standards issues are just about everywhere. I mean, if it, when it comes down to it, what is worse, a shitty paper about a dude jerking off or a shitty paper that gets actual science wrong, has bad methodology and gives people the wrong impression about a phenomenon that's actually happening? <laughs> I think we can. No, I, you're right. If you measure harm in terms of misinforming people about like the nature of gender dysphoria, I think the pediatrics paper will do more harm. So uh, the only way to save yourself from that harm is blocktoreport.org. That's right. Join us. Uh, okay, I guess that is about it for the this very masturbatory episode of Blockchain Reported. Uh, I think so. As always, we are produced with help from Tracy Woodgrains. Thank you, Trace. This has been Blockchain Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, masturbation is sex with someone I love. Doing this podcast is podcasting with someone who hates me. <laughs> I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, we probably should have warned you not to listen to this one with your children up top. <laughs>